Good morning. Good morning. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Luke 2, verse 11. Today is our communion service following morning worship. As is our tradition, take a break when you hear the music, regather, and then there'll be no service tonight. Looking for special music for the summer months? Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7. And see Andrea's number there for contact person. New missionary letters on the board. Uh, still looking for two volunteers for uh, nursery. See Jolene. And also, if you'd like to contribute to the makeover project, you'll see the information there. We have an outing scheduled for this coming Saturday, the 11th. We'll meet around 12.30. Lunch will be at 1. Bring dishes to share. Uh, plan on being there through the rest of the day and, and having another meal later in the day. Sign up is on the helps board. That's the one right here. And we'll need you to do that if you can today uh, because the church will be supplying chicken and we need to know how much to order. So uh, chicken supplied, bring a dish to pass, and then, of course, uh, whatever drinks and paper products that you would need, bring all those things. Uh, water toys, fishing gear, boats, kayaks, whatever, whatever you can find. New acts and facts uh, are also here for the month. Anything else? Scripture for meditation this morning, Isaiah, the ninth chapter, 1 through 7.
Let's stand and ask the Lord to bless us as we worship. Ken, can I ask you today to open? Almighty God and dear Father, we gathered together this morning in the, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the reason and for the purpose that we're here this morning. Our purpose is for praise and worship, to be encouraged through the gospel preached, and to enjoy some time of fellowship. But the reason we're here is because of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us as he buried his body in the sin of his people, and that was our sin. Christ was indeed victorious at Calvary as he buried his body in the sin. And he overcame death, Satan, and the grave. And because of that, we stand here before you this morning and proclaim that we are redeemed and we are justified. And with the awesome thought the scripture tells us we are clothed now in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't come on our own merits, Father. We, we come on the merits of Christ. That hymn writer tells us nothing in our hands we bring, just simply to the cross we cling. Father, we know what we are. We know that we are not what we should be, what we could be, and we're definitely not right now what we shall be. <coughs> but I think each of us here this morning can say, thank God, we are not what we used to be. We've been changed. Lord Jesus Christ has changed us. Father, we're still a needy people. We're all here have a prayer request or petition with physical help or, or spiritual help. We thank you and ask you for your continued blessing on this church, on the outreach of this church. We ask your blessings for Fred this morning as he brings forth a message for us. will be encouragement to us and food for our soul. We do thank you to Christ and our desire is to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And help us to grow together in love one for another and definitely for our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his precious and dear name that we pray. We say amen. Amen. Phil, you want to come and lead the singing? From the hymnal, number 139. That's the brown.
Please be seated. As always, we have a congregational hymn that uh, somebody puts their hands up and, and we pick and choose. And I see a couple of hands in the back. I'm going to give Andrew the nod today. Now, you got to tell me why. What's that? 138. Go tell it on the mountain. Andrew, why'd you pick this song? <coughs> One of Mercy's favorites? Okay, we'll go with that. 138 in the ground. <coughs> reading this morning is taken from Luke, the second chapter, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 20. (laughs) 
In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the wor world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went from Galilee, the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who is with child. And while they were there, they came for her. the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in, in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made, made known the saying that, they had, that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as, they, as it had been told to them. May God bless the reading of his word. Turn with us, please, and uh, page 155 in the Brown Hymnal. I'm drawing a little bit of a blank this morning on this. Uh, sing loud so you can cover up my mistakes. <laughs>
Our scripture text this morning is found in Luke chapter 2. In our last time together, we looked at the distinction between shadow and reality when it comes to the old covenant of the law and the new covenant of grace. We discovered that there was night in the old covenant, that as the darkness of shadow, which allowed some measure of light into spiritual things, but hid more than it revealed. The animal sacrifices prescribed by God's law were simply a prototype of the coming reality in Christ. It's kind of like, uh, you know, every year at uh, the auto industry uh, down in Detroit, they conduct the auto show at Kobo Arena. And there you can see the latest vehicles in the pipeline that may become production vehicles. I say may become but also maybe not. They are prototypes. Public feedback is noted, the cost of production is analyzed, competition is reviewed, all with the view of producing automobiles the consumers will love and will buy. God's salvation, however, was not designed on the basis of public opinion. The animal sacrifices were ordained by God. They provided a covering for sin, but not atonement, not a clearing of the conscience. Only God's Son could accomplish that. The day of the new covenant was initiated at Christ's advent into our world with a body a body that he might offer up himself as the Lamb of God who did and does atone for the sin of all who will entrust their lives to him. So we come today in our series, Joy Unspeakable, to the study of the joy of the Savior. Now next week I'm going to talk about the joy of salvation, but in order to have salvation you have to have a Savior. So today we're talking about the precursor, the joy of of Savior that will bring salvation to us. And as we come, let's ask for the Lord's enablement. Holy Father, we thank you for your word and pray your blessing upon it to be the sword that it is. You have said in the scriptures that your word will not return to you empty. No, it will accomplish exactly what you intend for it to do, whether it's conviction, bringing salvation to the lost, whether it's encouragement, whether it's rebuke, whether it's warning, all the various things that scripture does for us, meeting our own personal needs. And only you know where we are spiritually in our hearts. So we trust you to use that sword of the spirit, the word of God, in such a magnificent way that it will strike and cure and heal the wounds of our heart where they are, whatever they are. And if we need to know Christ as Savior, Lord, please bring us to life in Christ 
by your spirit. If we need to be rebuked for sin, then do that. If we need to be warned about our activities, what we're planning to do and all of those things, then do that. Whatever the need is, may your word be sufficient for us, for our souls, and for your good and glory. We praise you and thank you. Amen. Today we're looking at the subject, the joy of the Savior. And you'll notice in your bulletin outline that providential positioning through political edict. You might find this strange, but I know the world finds it strange, but we ought not to be uh, baffled by this. Luke's account of the birth of Jesus begins with the statement, notice, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, you see, Luke is the only biblical author who ties the Bible events here discussed with the political environment of the day. Caesar Augustus was the first Roman Empire. Roman emperor. He replaced the republic with an imperial form of government and reigned from 31 BC to AD 14. And he has given the title Augustus, which means exalted one, by the Roman Senate. Basically, he was a military general who established the Pax Romana, the Roman peace which lasted for more than two centuries. He expanded Rome, Roman rule into Egypt, Africa, Germania, all the way into Britain, Great Britain. Quirinius, mentioned in verse 3, was the replacement appointee governor of Syria for Herod Archelaus, one of Herod the Great's sons whose kingdom was divided into four parcels after Herod's death. Archelaus was a cruel dictator who killed more than 3,000 Pharisees when he came to rule in Judea. Killed them. No wonder when Joseph and Mary returned from hiding in Egypt after Herod's slaughter of the boy babies in Bethlehem, We read, but when he, Joseph, heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Yeah, I'd be afraid to go there too, right? Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, Matthew 2, verse 22. So you can think about these. He's coming out of Egypt, and he goes around Samaria, and he heads to Galilee. He, he, he doesn't go through Judea. Uh-uh. He doesn't want to be where Archelaus is ruling. Because this man has blood dripping on his sword. Well, later Archelaus fell out of favor with Augustus. And Quirinius was appointed as his replacement. Quirinius is the Latin name for Cyrenius. You find in your King James Bible there. He served in two administrations, one in Syria at the time of Joseph and Mary's 
trek to Bethlehem, and the second time after Herod Archelaus was deposed. He was in power during the first census. A second census is mentioned in Acts 5, verse 37. The census was taken for ascertaining military age availability and for taxation. Now, the Jews were exempt from military service, uh, but not from Roman taxation. And that was always uh, the thing that just gritted at their soul, that they had to pay taxes to Rome. Joseph lived in Nazareth to lived in Nazareth in Galilee. But verse 4 says he was of the house and line of King David. After God rejected Saul as king, we read the Lord said to Samuel, "How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil." That's, you know, the ram's horn with oil, and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. Thereafter, Bethlehem became known as the town of David, verse 4, of our text. If you check out the genealogy of Matthew 1, you will discover that it says, Joseph, husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Christ being the Greek word for Messiah. And right smack in the middle of that table of genealogy is King David, born to Jesse, of whom we read in 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, that he was of Bethlehem. So Bethlehem was King David's town, how significant that King David's heir, the Christ, would be orchestrated by God to go to Bethlehem via pregnant mom Mary so that he too would be born in David's town. The significance of this, of course, is that Joseph, a humble carpenter by trade, was a descendant of King David, himself a humble shepherd boy in his early days of his family. And after God rejected Saul, David was anointed as king, and God made some very important promises to King David. 2 Samuel 7, verse 1 and following, the Lord swore on oath to David, a sure oath that he will not revoke. One of your descendants I will place on your throne. Psalm 132, verse 11. In Psalm 39, we read, Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, and I will not lie to David, that his line will continue forever and his throne endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. Think about that, Selah. Psalm 39, verse 35 and following. From Isaiah's prophecy, we learn 
that David's descendants was to have more than a provincial kingdom, not just Judea of Palestine. No. But the nations, nations, plural, of the world. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes, nor decide by what he hears with his ears. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. Isaiah 11, verse 1 and following. So something far more extensive was to come than the Pax Romana, the Roman peace ushered, by, ushered in by Caesar Augustus. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. His government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9, verse 6. And Jesus taught his disciples, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, not as the world gives, give I to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. John 14, verse 27. Now, humanly speaking, what set all of this into motion? Why would Joseph and Mary, residents of Nazareth in Galilee, that's way north, in Palestine. Why would they have any reason to travel to Bethlehem at the height of Mary's pregnancy? Verse 5. He went there to register with Mary. Register for what? Well, for the Roman census by edict of Caesar Augustus, who didn't much concern himself about the hardships people might experience in getting to their hometowns to register. And by the way, there's no time limit on the travel. They just had to get there and register. God is able, and he has proven himself time and again, that he will move heaven and earth to accomplish his will. In the scriptures, he says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. From a far-off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. Isaiah 46, verse 10 and 11. That's our God. Never a liar, always telling the truth. Never a stronghold hand against him that can withstand what he wants to do. Two chapters earlier, we read, One will say, I belong to the Lord. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Still another will write on his hand, The Lord's. And will take the name Israel. 
This is what the Lord says. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. And apart from me there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare. Lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people. And what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. Isaiah 44 verses 5 and following. You will notice here that God is going on record as the one who controls history. He controls history. I'm the first. I am the last. And by implication, every, <laughs> everything in the middle. He says, let him, referring to his rival, possible rival, let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people. He's talking about history past. And then he goes on, and what is yet to come? Yes, let him foretell what will come. So be it past or be it future. Can you tell what I'm up to? Can anybody stop what I'm up to? Clearly God is living up to his reputation as the Lord Almighty. He's butting heads with the idolaters who worship creations of their own hands. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 44, All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame, who shapes a god and casts an idol, which can profit him nothing. He and his kind will be put to shame. Craftsmen are nothing but men. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and infamy. Isaiah 44, verse 9 and following. No contest here, you see. Idols and the men who make them are simply artisans whose creations in the end are impotent. But God can and he does move kings and governors to do his will. The Lord Almighty has sworn, surely, as I have planned, so it will be. As I have purposed, so it will stand. I will crush the Assyrians in my land. On my mountains I will trample him down. His yoke will be taken from my people, his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purpose. Who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out. Who can turn it back? Isaiah 14, verse 24 and following. That's our God. That's our God. Joseph and pregnant Mary had to get to Bethlehem so that Jesus could be born in the royal city of David. Before an edict went out from Caesar Augustus that all the Roman world be registered in a census, compelling Joseph to travel to his ancestry town of Bethlehem, I say before all of that, there was another edict that went out hundreds of years before, Micah tells us, 
But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Ephrathah means fruitful. Though you're small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when the one who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the mighty majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely for his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Micah 5 verses 2 through 4. What I am saying here is that providence providence moved the nativity couple to Bethlehem by Caesar's edict. Yes, Caesar's edict. Unbeknown to Caesar himself that he was accomplishing the will of God. That's our Lord. That's what he does. He uses men to get his will done. When we study the Bible, we are studying his story. His story. God's story. We need to keep that in mind. Secondly, Mary's child was God's child, born to Ben Bethlehem, on time, in time. Have you ever considered how demanding it would be physically, physically now, for a woman in her ninth month of pregnancy to travel in New Testament days from Nazareth to Bethlehem? Bethlehem was due south of Nazareth, 80 miles as the crow flies. But no Jew would venture through Samaria because of the great hostility Samaritans had for the Jews and because of the roving bandits that occupied that countryside. So, so, for safer travel, the Jews traveled in caravans. For less trouble with the locals, they would cross the River Jordan, travel south on the east side of the river, to avoid Samaria altogether, and then recross the Jordan to enter Judea and reach their destination. That's the long way around the barn to get to where you want to go. The average person can walk 20 miles in a day. But Mary is an average at this point in her life. Mary was heavily laden with a child in the womb. Most portrayals of the pilgrimage picture Joseph leading Mary seated on a donkey. But we have no biblical knowledge that such was the case. Was she on a donkey? I don't know. That's just an artistic portrayal. Could he even afford a donkey? I don't know. But in her condition, Mary and Joseph likely took a good week of travel to move from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And this slow poke, snail's pace likely accounts for the fact that by the time they did reach Bethlehem, we are told, verse 7, 
There was no room for them in the inn. Well, of course, because everyone got there first when all the rooms were rented. Yet, in this long trek, 80 miles, think about it, Mary did not miscarry. The special hand of providence resided upon her. Why would this be so? Well, it is because God had a vested interest in this child of hers. This child was special. Why was he special? Because Jesus was God's son, humanized in bodily form. Mary was a virgin, yet with child. How could that be? Well, even Mary didn't know how that could become true. If you look back to chapter 1 of Luke, verse 26 and following, it says, In the sixth month God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town of Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered, Whoa, what kind of a greeting that might be? But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus, which means Savior. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Luke 1, verse 26 and following. Mary questioned how this could be, since she was a virgin. And so Gabriel, the angel, continued. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, who was said to be barren, is in her sixth month already. You know, For nothing is impossible with God. Luke 1, verse 35 and following. I want you to notice that Gabriel answered Mary's question in both a biological and in a spiritual manner. Mary admitted she was a virgin. Virgins do not reproduce. She knew that. Furthermore, at this time in her life, Joseph and she were engaged, but they weren't married. And you remember that when her pregnancy became evident, Joseph had misgivings about marrying her. Had Mary been unfaithful to him? Well, he believed it possible. And so he planned to dissolve the relationship privately to save Mary from public scandal. There again, an angel was sent to clarify. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, 
She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And that's found in Isaiah 7, verse 14. And then Luke quotes the verse. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Matthew 1, verse 20 through 25. So you see the consistency here in these three accounts. Isaiah 7, 14 predicted 700 years before Christ that a virgin would conceive and birth a son whose name would be Emmanuel, God with us. Secondly, Luke 1, that account, we have Gabriel telling Mary, a virgin, that her impending pregnancy would produce a child called the Son of God. And finally, number three, Mary's intended groom, Joseph, to whom she was already engaged, is told by an angel that her pregnancy, which caused him to doubt her fidelity, was none other than the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy of Emmanuel coming and being born. One, two, three. See how God piles up the truth of his word. What's the biological explanation for Mary's conception? She was a virgin. Virgins don't conceive unaided by a man. You know what the Mormons do? They have a very wicked doctrine. Here's their doctrine. The Mormons teach this blasphemy against God, saying, God the Father came to earth and cohabited with Mary to produce the human body of Jesus. That it would be utterly impossible. There are certain things that are impossible, you know, even for God. John 4.24 says, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Or Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. As succinctly as I can put it, God the Father doesn't have a body. There is no corporal reality to God. So there could be no cohabitation with Mary. But Mary's ovum her egg was fertilized. Cell division began rapidly and expansively. Her abdomen became larger. Joseph discovered that she was with child. This is what upset him. What's the biological answer? God says in Matthew 1 verse 20, What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Luke's account, 
The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. God, as Spirit, cannot and does not cohabit with Mary. But what he can do is utilize all of his divine power to give life to Mary's ovum, her egg, to create a baby of his generation. What kind of power does God the Spirit have? At the dawn of the world's creation, Moses writes, here it is, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit was hovering over the waters. Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2. And as the text unfolds, the seas and the dry land appear. And the sun, the stars, the moon. Verse 20 says, let the waters teem with living creatures. And so God created the great creatures of the sea. And every living thing moving They're in the water teeming according to their kind. And God saw that it was good. I want you to think about this. If God the Spirit can do this, he has no trouble whatsoever generating a baby in Mary's womb. That's the biological. The spiritual answer to Mary's pregnancy is found in Luke 1, verse 37. Nothing is impossible with God. That's the spiritual answer. The Spirit of God who made the waters of the deep teem with life, even the great sea creatures, is not debilitated in any way when it comes to human procreation. As a matter of practical proof, the angel told Mary, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, who was said to be barren, is in her sixth month. Luke 1, verse 36. Now, it's a different kind of miracle, to be sure. It's a different sort. But both Elizabeth and her husband, like Abraham and Sarah of old, were well past the age of childbearing. Yet Zechariah prayed that his wife Elizabeth would have a child and God gave this barren couple the greatest prophet that ever lived, John the Baptist. In their old age, God is able to generate life wherever he thinks the thought. Just has to think the thought. I want you to think about that in terms of eternal life. Wherever God thinks the thought, life can come to dead souls. Though they are dead in trespasses and sin, he can think them alive as they hear the gospel. It happened with me. It happened with you who know Christ this morning. It happens still centuries, centuries later. Now, secondly, what is the vital importance of the incarnation? By the way, the word incarnation is a Greek word. It's a combination of Greek words. It means literally to be encased 
in flesh, incarnate, to be encased in flesh. Well, God took upon himself a human body and a human nature. I don't know if you know it, but historically, this was fought out, boy, by the theologians. The heretics did not want to hear anything about God coming in a corporal body. Why? Because the Gnostics, who were philosophers in the Greek culture of that day, believed everything material was evil. And you're telling us that God Almighty is going to take upon himself a flesh and blood body. No way! That would make him evil. Well, you know, if your premise is wrong, (laughs) all matter is evil, then your conclusions are going to be wrong too. And they were wrong. Christ came, God came in a human body. We learned last week the limitation of the animal sacrifices of the Old Covenant. Hebrews 10, verse 4 and 5. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. A body. A material body. Hebrews 10, verse 5 and 6. Yes, God prepared for him. And observe here that the scriptures are talking about Christ coming into the world. A certain reference to his birth as a man, but but not a reference to a new or fresh existence. No, he's existing somewhere else, but he's coming into the world. You know, none of us believe that when we have a baby born to us in our families, none of us believe that that child existed previously in another realm and is now being humanized. We don't believe that. No, in human reproduction, the union of sperm and egg produces a new entity. Then and there which has never existed before, and in that each of us are unique. There's not another person like you on all the face of the earth. In Jesus' incarnation, what we have is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who as with God the Father and God the Spirit existed from eternity, having neither beginning nor end. Let me read it for you. John tells us of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Oh, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. John 1, 1 to 4. Paul words it this way. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Philippians 2, verse 7. 
Wow, there is involvement of the son here in the process of his own birth. What Mary provided for Jesus was not existence. What she provided for him was a body. Hebrews 10, verse 5. The Nicene Creed, 325 A.D., put it this way. He was begotten, but not made. Not made. John puts it this way. The word became flesh. It was already around, you see. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, verse 14. Verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. John 1, verse 18. Now, when we read the term begotten, our minds go to the genealogies of the Bible, which read, and I'll give you an example, uh, Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. You'll find that in Ruth chapter 4, verse 22, as well as other places. When we read something like so-and-so begot somebody, we think of the normal biological procreation of husbands with wives, and we think Jesse didn't exist until Obed begat him. Nor David until Jesse begat him. But the Bible doesn't use the term begat or begotten in that way concerning Jesus because he's called the only begotten of the Father as though there was a time, this is what men think, as though there was a time when the Son did not exist until the Father somehow reproduced him. That's why the Mormons go astray on this point. Well, yeah, begot, so... First John 1 verse 2 says the life appeared. We have seen it, testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father. He has appeared to us. Whoa! First John 1 verse 2. Jesus is called the eternal life. On the fourth verse, 1 John 1 verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. Okay, the life was eternal. What's that mean? He was always with the Father. Always there. Jesus was that life. For him to be eternal, he had to have no beginning, no end. And so the term begotten, as applied to Christ, is a reference to his eternal state as part of the Godhead. In other words, he has always been viewed as the begotten of God. Or the way the NIV puts it, God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side. John 1, verse 18. 
It's a family term within the Trinity. It does not mean God the Father was around forever and then one day he had a son. No, the son always was with him. And that is why John writes, the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. That's what's new. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. God's Son coming into our world, being born as a human being. That's what's new. That's what's new. But as to his existence, that's not new. He was always with the Father. And then secondly, God the Spirit cannot die, but God in a body as a son can and does die. Jesus' humanity is absolutely essential to your salvation and mine. Sin is the breaking of God's law. A lawbreaker, by definition, becomes a criminal. Justice demands that criminals be held accountable for their crimes. Every breach of God's law, get it now, every breach of God's law is a capital offense. What do I mean by that? It requires the death penalty. Every breach. Say, well, I just told, I told, I didn't murder anybody. Dead. That's the sentence. I've never committed adultery. Oh yeah, I might have told some lies once in a while. Dead. Any breach of God's law is the penalty of death. Let me read it for you. For every living soul belongs to me. The Father as well as the Son both alike belong to me. The soul that sins is the one that will die. Ezekiel 18, verse 4. How many people can be identified as a soul that sins? Well, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, I'm reading scripture, and death through him, and in this way, death came to all men because all men. Sin. Romans 5 verse 12. And in Romans 6 verse 23, the wages of sin is death. I'll say it again. Every sin is a capital offense. Every sin gets the death penalty. You are not going to get incarceration. You are not going to get community service. You're not going to have an electronic tether strapped around your ankle and allowed to walk wherever you want, but still being under the auspices of the law watching you. No, every sinner gets the death penalty. Oh, and by the way, Matthew 25:46 calls it an eternal punishment. That means it never ends. Oh, wow. <laughs> So how are sinners to be saved? By doing good? No, no. Doing good. How does that expunge sin that carries the death penalty? 
The soul who sins is the one that dies. So short of that penalty, the sin is not paid for. The crime is still relevant. Well, God provides Jesus as a substitute for all who believe. Let me read it for you from Paul. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin. He made him, made him to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And we were talking about that in the adult class this morning. Of Jesus' humanity did we not read. He himself bore our sins, our sins in his body on the tree. So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. When your friends start talking about being good and doing good works, you need to ask your friends, how does your good works satisfy the death penalty that's due your sins? That's a good way to witness to them. Because they're going to start talking about how good they are and what the good things they've done. How do your good works satisfy the death penalty for your sins? I ask you this morning, what happens if you don't trust Jesus as your substitute for the death penalty? Well, Jesus answers. Here's his answer. I told you, He's speaking. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. You will die in your sins. John 8, verse 24. Anyway, you caught it. God's justice will be satisfied Either it's in his son or in yourself for eternity. Which is it going to be for you? I charge you to choose Christ. Plead mercy on the merit of Jesus' blood and righteousness, not your own. You can't possibly do enough good to pay for your sins. You can't deal with the curse of the sin, which is the death penalty forever. Well, somebody put himself to the death penalty for the sins of his people. So never think of your sins, Christians, as God being lenient towards you. He was not lenient. Paul says he did not spare his only beloved son, but offered him up. What's that? That's the cross. He gave him up. For our sins. Death was administered for our sins in Christ. If you're going to have a substitute, it's got to be a perfect substitute. So, what do I mean by that? It has to be a person 
who himself or herself does not have any sin for which they have to account in their own life. Other, otherwise, how can they be a substitute for you when they got enough baggage of their own? So in order for a substitute to be a viable stand-in under God's wrath, that substitute has to be perfect. Can I say it this way? Blameless, sinless, never once thinking a sinful thought, saying a sinful word, doing a sinful deed, not ever once. Perfect in terms of righteousness. Where are you going to find that? found in one person only, the sinless Son of God. And if you have him as your stand-in, as your substitute, God will forgive you on the basis of his Son that you're trusting in. I pray that that's the case this morning with everyone here. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the substitute that we have in Christ. There is none like him. I pray your blessing upon the truth of your word. Who would have thought this little child born to Mary in Joseph in such a menial ways, a stable, would be the Son of God who come who came in such humility, condescending, coming down from glory, yes but condescending in this way that he took upon himself our human nature in a human body so that he could go to the cross. What he did not take, however, he didn't become a sinner himself. He remained his perfection in righteousness so that all the sins of his people could be piled on him his righteous life as well as his sacrificial death would atone for his people's sins. Lord, we need that Savior. You're the only Savior. Peter says, you're the, it's, your name is the only name given among men. Under heaven, the only name under heaven by which we must be saved. Please make these truths a reality to our hearts in Christ's name. Amen. Our hymn is 152 in the hymnal. 152 in the brown hymnal. We're going to take a small break and then regather when you hear the music. We'll come back for our communion service. Let's stand as we sing. 152. I'm singing Christmas hymns in August. (laughs) We ought to do this more often, don't you think? The glory of the birth of Christ is not something we ought to relegate to December. Let's sing.
the hymn writer uh, had some good thoughts there. Uh, you know, where's, where's the peace and goodwill? <laughs> There's a lot of hatred going on in the world. Well, when he wrote that, what, what about our dates? even escalated all the more. But we ought not to look at the political arena about us and the wickedness of the world and say in our heart of hearts, oh, boy, God's word must be failing. No, it's not failing. It's accomplishing all that God wants it to do, and he shall prevail. And those for whom he has died will be saved, not one of them being lost, not one, not ever. Who among men accomplishes everything they plan? No one. But God does. And he's not on your timetable. He's on his own. So keep praying for your lost family, your lost friends, and look to God to prevail. All right, we're going to take a 10-minute break. Come back when you hear the music. We'll gather around the Lord's table and celebrate his death, burial, and resurrection. Amen. 